Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of Everything Economics. I am your host, Talia Murdoch, and would like to begin by acknowledging that we are gathered on the unceded territory of the Coast Salish people, including the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations, where this podcast is recorded. In this episode, I will be continuing to talk about the opioid epidemic across North America, focusing more on the losses generated by widespread use of a dangerous drug, strategies that have been successful in treating those in need, plus other policy solutions moving forward. If you haven't had a chance to listen to the latest episode, I strongly recommend you do as it sets the scene for opioid use in the US and Canada over the past decade or so. Otherwise, here is a quick recap of some key points. 80% of opioid users in North America state that they started using the drug with a legal prescription. Up until the 1990s, opioids were primarily prescribed to treat cancer-related pain until pharmaceutical companies started to market the drug to doctors as safe with a low risk of addiction to treat all types of pain. Distribution of opioids rose exponentially, reaching its peak in 2012, with 76 billion oxycodone pills being distributed between 2006 and 2012 in the US. This led to the second wave heroin epidemic as prescription rates tightened and those with opioid use disorders had to find their drugs elsewhere and now we find ourselves in the midst of the fentanyl crisis. Tens of thousands of people have died because of this and continue to die. Emergency departments have been overwhelmed and resources stretched thin but some measures like distribution of naloxone kits have been successful in reducing the rate of fatal overdoses to an extent. So what exactly happens when a large cohort of people find themselves dependent on a drug that also when obtained from the street can have fatal consequences? The most obvious negative impact is people dying. Aside from this, drug dependency can make someone's life unstable and restrict them from doing the things they would want to do if they weren't physically dependent on a substance. In 2017, Alan Kruger, a fairly prolific economist, released a research paper on the impacts opioid use had on the labour force, the labour force being those of working age, currently employed or actively seeking employment. Now, unfortunately, people who are addicted to drugs dying doesn't always spark sadness or empathy or urgency, so things like this are important when looking at the issue broadly. This paper suggested that labour force participation is lower and declined more in the 2000s in counties that had higher opioid prescription rates than others. Thinking back to the last episode, this includes places like West Virginia. About 43% of the decline in the male labour force in particular can be attributed to the increase in opioid prescriptions and distribution during that time. The limitation here is, especially in a post-GFC world, it isn't clear how much things like poor health and demotivated workers could have led to high prescription rates. But it is clear that the high prescription rates in turn impacted the labour force significantly. In 2015, the cost of the epidemic in the US was estimated to be $504 billion. Loss of labour force is one of the areas that bears this cost through loss of productivity. The other sectors that bear a large brunt of the cost also include healthcare and justice, and the costs go beyond just delivering care. In Ontario, Canada, for example, a province where we have ED data, We learned in the last episode that in 2017, there were a total of 7,821 ED visits 
due to opioid poisoning, a 73% increase from the previous year. Now, knowing that the average cost of an ED visit in Ontario is $148, we can calculate that in 2017, at least $1,157,508 was spent treating patients who had been poisoned by opioids. It is important to note that this is not the only cost associated with the dangerous drug market. Dangerous in the sense that it is now hard to know exactly what you are buying. There are, of course, externalities attached to this crisis. For example, the individual with the drug use disorder and also their family will be subject to productivity loss as people are unable to work as much, either caring for themselves, obtaining their opioids, or caring for the family member in need. And this cost is mostly borne by the private sector. The impacts on family and a community are also hard to measure, but very real, when death is common and quality of life is sadly diminished. When it comes to the costs on the police force for opioid poisonings, these are also very high. Often police officers can be the first respondents to an overdose and have to deliver first aid. Then there is the ethical question of, does this person need to be arrested for possession? Depending on the legislation in a jurisdiction, if the answer is yes, this is a long-winded process, taking up resources and adding to the user's criminal record, which can have negative impacts in the long term. To understand more about that specifically, you can listen to episode 24, where I consider this for people charged with cannabis possession. Now, I found a report on police costs in Canada, but without much of an in-depth understanding of the system here, I don't want to quote any of the data in dollars, so I have linked it in the show notes if anyone is interested in taking a look. From what I can tell on the surface level, however, the costs are high, and honestly not always necessary especially when it comes to the administrative burden of possession charges. Fortunately, in Canada, three bills were passed that amended the Controlled Drugs and Substances Act in order to make it easier to manage the opioids epidemic and treat users fairly. Bill C-224, also known as the Good Samaritan Bill, exempts those who need medical or police assistance because of an overdose from being charged with possession, dealing directly with the scenario described before. Bill S-225 regulates certain substances used in the production of fentanyl, making it harder for it to reach the streets through legal channels. And finally, Bill C-37 simplifies the application process for safe injection sites, making it easier for them to access clean drugs by essentially decriminalizing it for this cohort of organizations. This has proven to be very effective at Insight, a safe injection site in Vancouver, that allows drug users to access clean, safe opioids, sterile syringes, and also be in a safe environment with qualified medical staff nearby. Since opening in 2003, no deaths have ever occurred at Insight and the space has not impacted usage rates. Now, while this is a great step, I don't really think that decriminalization does enough, whether we are considering safe injection sites or for individuals. Not being charged and penalised for possessing a drug only does so much to ensure its safety when compared to complete legalisation. It doesn't really do much to ensure the safety of a drug as the supply itself isn't regulated. People who do not have access to a safe injection site still risk using contaminated drugs bought from illegal sources. If safe injection sites were in abundance and there was no stigma surrounding these, 
then decriminalization might be more effective in supporting drug use safety. But again, it does not do enough to control and regulate supply. Further, and as discussed in episode 9 and 24, legal products can be taxed, and those tax dollars can be spent directly in communities who have been harmed by the opioid epidemic. So legislative changes are one way to help combat the opioid crisis, but it is such a complex public health issue that more than one policy tool needs to be implemented. Community-based overdose prevention programs have been very successful across North America in keeping people alive. First emerging in the 1990s, these programs educate opioid-affected communities how to administer naloxone successfully to prevent fatal overdoses. The number of these programs in both the US and Canada have expanded dramatically. In San Francisco, after implementing naloxone programs, overdoses from heroin fell from about 180 per year in the late 1990s to just 10 to 11 per year from 2010 to 2012. Comparatively, Scotland's national program, which began in 2011, right around the peak of the prescription period, accounted for a 36% reduction in the proportion of opioid-related deaths that occurred in the four weeks following a release from prison. The growth in overdose prevention programs was largely driven by the fact that the Department of Health and Human Services in the US at a national level in 2015 highlighted naloxone rescue kit access as one of the top three priority areas in dealing with the opioid epidemic. By 2016, all but three US states have laws supporting naloxone provision to any person despite their level of medical training. This does not necessarily mean that overdose rates themselves declined, as we learned in the last episode, rather prevented them from becoming fatal. As opioid prescription rates started to plateau and decline, once prescription monitoring programs and public awareness on the dangers of opioids grew, heroin overdoses in the US and Western Canada increased dramatically, as people had to seek out their opioids from other sources. So while naloxone is a fantastic treatment for overdoses, it alone doesn't treat a drug use disorder. To make things even more challenging, we are currently in the midst of a fentanyl crisis, a synthetic opioid that is 40 times more potent, faster acting, taking effect in as little as a few minutes compared to a half hour or so for heroin when used intravenously, and therefore potentially deadly than old-fashioned heroin. From a producer perspective, fentanyl requires less bulk and weight to distribute than heroin, and it can be reliably manufactured from chemicals in large quantities indoors, compared to heroin which comes from an opium crop that must be grown in open air, making it more difficult to hide from law enforcement. As such, 74% of opioid-related overdose deaths examined in 2016 had positive toxicology results for fentanyl. A large portion of the increase in drug-related deaths can be directly attributed to this presence. Education about fentanyl is a crucial step in combating the epidemic and reducing the risk of death. People who are in areas affected by fentanyl can be taught to taste their drugs or start off by using a small test dose to determine how potent the opioid is. Health authorities, wherever they may be, should absolutely provide funding to on-the-ground organisations to develop and support education program and resource distribution. Particularly in this new fentanyl age, where multiple naloxone doses are often needed to prevent fatal overdoses, 
as well as resuscitation like chest compressions and automatic defibrillators. Medical staff, volunteers and drug users themselves will need more advanced training and education. When it comes to caring for a patient post-overdose, most emergency services transport individuals to the ED for a period of observation. The problem with this is that emergency departments often have limited resources and being in this environment can also be overwhelming and traumatic for someone who has just overdosed on a lethal drug. But things can be done to provide better care, like Vancouver, BC's medical mobile units. Medical mobile units, or MMUs, were developed in Vancouver in response to the overwhelming number of OD presentations to the ED being more than 6,000 in 2016, with paramedics responding to an average of 30 per day. Vancouver Coastal Health, BC Emergency Health Services, the City of Vancouver, nurses and social workers all came together to bring the MMU to the heart of the downtown east side, being one of the most affected areas. The MMU is essentially a hospital on wheels. Being a mobile unit means it can move to where it is needed. Say the community of the downtown east side moved to another area, but still needed support and care, the unit can easily follow. This also allows the unit to bring clinical education, relief, and conduct public health outreach across the province. Being located in the middle of a community also allows clinicians working in the clinic to quickly identify with confidence low-risk patients who are presumed to overdose on fentanyl that did not need advanced care from an ED. This directly diverts resources that would have otherwise been used to treat that patient to other patients needing the advanced care. Ambulance use has also been reduced. For paramedics taking patients to the MMU, the drop-off time is just a few minutes compared to being tied up outside the ED for half an hour or more, waiting for their patient to be triaged. Over just four months from December 2016 to March 2017, 269 cases of opioid overdoses were treated at the MMU by clinicians who were better trained to treat and care for such patients. None of these patients had any adverse events related to the MMU treatment. Unlike in an ED setting, Patients are also given warm blankets, food and juice, and addiction care and resources because staff had the time, capacity, and mission to deliver this care. Additionally, every patient was urged to take home a naloxone kit and educated on how to identify an overdose and administer treatment to themselves or their friends. A huge benefit of the MMU is also that one in five patients receive medications for opioid treatment compared to 1 in 50 who present in the ED. Now, this goes a really long way in treating opioid use disorder, and over time can be life-changing to an individual. Medications that treat opioid addiction commonly include things like methadone or methadose, a medical-grade opioid. Now, when a person develops an opioid use disorder, their body can become physically dependent on the drug, such that without it, they become dope-sick making quitting incredibly difficult and challenging. Dope sickness includes withdrawal symptoms like nausea and vomiting, insomnia, sensitive skin, restless leg, sweats, body aches, diarrhea, depression and anxiety, among others. These are all things that lower someone's quality of life and limit them from being a happy, healthy part of their community, contributing to those losses of productivity I mentioned earlier, 
and just overall well-being. By being able to access affordable, if not free, medicine like methadone, a person will not experience the symptoms of dope sickness, be able to lead a normal life, support their community and their friends, and not have to seek out non-prescribed opioids that often contain lethal substances like fentanyl. It is essential that users have a choice of what medicine they consume. In many cases where one treatment has been replaced with another formula, Patients have reported a decrease in its effectiveness, suffering dope sickness again, and eventually reverting back to illicit sources that are more dangerous to their health. This happened in BC in 2014, in the UK in 1992, and also in other places. The linkage between formula change and effectiveness is not fully understood. We don't know if patients are having a physical reaction to the change, or if it is a placebo effect. But either way, it is real. Fortunately, and after many years of fighting, the drug user community in BC were successful in seeing that both formulas were available to choose from and without special authority to patients in need, plus both are covered by pharmacare, making the treatment accessible. Being able to manage a physical drug addiction is another key step in combating the epidemic. This crisis goes beyond losses in productivity and healthcare costs. Drug users are people like anyone else who need medicine to treat a condition in order to live a stable, healthy and well life. So that brings me to the end of this episode and two-part series on the opioid epidemic in North America. As is clear, this is a highly complex public health issue needing urgent attention and action. Multiple strategies must be implemented by governments to save lives and improve a community and society at large. The opioid crisis presents a huge failure of governments and the pharmaceutical industry who cannot deny the large part they have played in fueling addiction rates and opioid use. Now, as many of you will know, there are ongoing lawsuits against certain companies happening in the US and across the world that I'm sure will be in court for many years to come. And I sincerely hope that when the penalties are laid, the money is used to directly treat users in need and implement the policy measures discussed in this episode. As always, thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can follow me on Twitter at Talia Murdoch and find the whole network at Cave Goblins across all social media platforms. Please rate and review on iTunes to support the show or give just $1 a month to our Patreon to access weekly and monthly audio content. Thank you again. Be kind to each other. I am Talia Murdoch and this has been Everything Economics. I'm Piers Ray. Sitting with me is Eric Ivanovich. My name is Eric Ivanovich. We're the hosts of Podcast vs. Podcast right here on the Cave Goblin Network. This is the only podcast pitching show on the internet. Tune in. Find out if we can ever find the perfect podcast. Or, more importantly, can we agree on it? This is a Cave Goblin podcast. For other podcasts like this, visit cavegoblins.com. We hope you have enjoyed this program.